It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Crazy, I'm not getting anything. I said everything gonna be alright. I said everything gonna be alright. Everything I hope is gonna be alright, John. We uh we've had some technical issues, but we're getting up and running here. Okay. Wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio. It's IAQ Radio. It's Friday, September 30th, 2016. This week is episode 433. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. I am in Studio D at the Backup Computer in Central City, Pennsylvania. Our engineer, John, you got to have faith, is here with me. And uh, Z-Man Cliff Zlotnick is joining us from Studio C back in McKees Rocks. Hello, Cliff. Hey, Joe. Hi, John. Hello, everybody. Good to be back in the in the saddle here, Cliff. I know you were on the road a little this week, and uh, I'm sure it's good to be home. All right. Uh, we are waiting to hear from our guest. Uh, we are supposed to have Bill Fisk, the leader of the Lawrence Berkeley Laboratories Indoor Environments Group. I'm hoping we'll see Bill on the line here any moment. We had some technical issues, and uh, we're hoping that he will call back in. But before we get started, let's stop and thank our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at their website, jondon.com. That's jondon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IEQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at IAQtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Prize by outcompeting fellow IAQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Either email it to cslotnick at cs.com or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer via your computer. Congratulations. Doug Conan, Aerotech Environmental in Dayton, Ohio, for answering last week's IAQ Radio Trivia question. The IAQ Radio Trivia question for Friday, September 30, 2016, has been sponsored by 
Ideas, the solution chemistry company, creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Now for today's IQ Radio trivia question. What year was the original ASHRAE Standard 62, now known as Ventilation for Acceptable Indoor Air Quality, published? Back to you, Joe. All right. Thank you, Cliff. And uh, we're still waiting for uh, Bill Fisk to join us here, but I'm hoping he'll be here any moment. I have not gotten responses from emails, so I'm not sure what happened there. But uh, while we're waiting, I would like to talk about a few things. I had a I was away last week, and Cliff, I, I missed the show, and I, I heard, I, I got to read your blog. I haven't had a chance to listen. How did it go with Jim Pemberton? It went well. Uh, it went well. Uh, he and I had a chance to, uh, you know, I think the one thing that we both have in common is that uh, we both dropped out of training doing IICRC courses, you know, for really similar reasons. And I, you know, I think one of the primary issues that we had is we kind of disagreed with, uh, number one, some of the information, I think the volume of information that, you know, had to be delivered. And, you know, one of the key facts was that the information um, in IIQ training programs is not really based on learning objectives, Joe. It's really based on examination questions. You know, at some point for every uh, subject that they do a training course in, they have a committee. Uh, that committee puts together an examination, and uh, what happens is the the folks that are preparing or writing courses to teach that particular course need to annotate their manuals and prove to the IICRC that they've covered all of the test questions. But there's really not necessarily a learning objective. They're just test questions. And none of these test questions are weighted. You know, like what is most important? What's good to know? Uh, and what's really trivia? Everything is pretty much given equal weight. And during the delivery uh, of these courses, it's not uncommon for an instructor to have a to have to cover a test question every five to ten minutes uh, of of training time, and uh, you know it makes it it makes it difficult. You know because in many situations, you know you, whether you like it or not, you end up sending the test. And you know a lot of the students are there just to get the the, the certification. You know the, the the IICRC's training courses. You know according to Jim, uh, and he hosts a lot of these courses. Uh, at his, he's a distributor of products and equipment. He hosts the courses at his facility, and the one course that always has an overflow uh, of students is water damage restoration. Other than that, there are a lot of open seats in the courses, and you know what's happened is the IICRC has done a nice job with their standards and marketing of that standard to the insurance industry, and many insurance companies require that the, the, the firms that are rendering water damage restoration services for them have the IICRC water damage certification. So that seems to be the big driver. You know, everyone rendering the service has to have it. So that's kind of why the, uh, you know, the, the, the seats are filled. And 
you know, in the September issue of the IICRC Journal, uh, I wrote an article, and, and so did Ken Larson, uh, you know, expressing concerns about really the state of the water damage restoration industry. And really, a lot of this stuff goes back to, to training. You know, one of the things about Donald Trump and his, uh, you know, marketing slogan, you know, for running for president is, you know, making America great again. And I think in order to make the restoration business great again, we really need to make the training great again. And I just find that the training model is really, really broken. I don't believe students come out of those courses, uh, you know, really knowing a whole lot of anything other than passing the course. And if you think about it, you know, what the course is, is, you know, it's, a, it's so many questions. And you know, on every given on, on any given day, it's kind of like football. You know, you know, on any given day, uh, you know, the student may or may not pass the course, and they have a certification based on what they did that particular day. You know, another issue is they need 75% to to pass an IICRC exam, and they really don't know about the other 25% that they that they missed. Right. Now imagine right. learning how to to, to to pilot an aircraft. And, you know, the questions that you missed had to do with putting down the landing gear or something, you know, before you <laughs> landed. You know, some of that stuff is just real, real important to know. Well, I, I'm wondering, um, I have my own thoughts on the, the whole process. And, and, and as you know, I, I just decided not to even be involved with their programs. I, I tried while I was, I'm still on the board for another month. Well, maybe less than a month, thank goodness, because I'm done. Um, and I still haven't figured out why things are the way they are. I know we're trying to change it um, and had some professional educators in there, actually people that teach in colleges. And uh, and these aren't, you know, they're not they're not teaching the standard college level courses. They're they're teaching trades in colleges one one was at greenville technical college um the other gentleman was out of purdue but he was in a construction management program so these weren't you know these weren't physics and so on but uh and they tried to make the changes to emphasize more what you know the learning objectives should be and 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 what people exactly what you're saying instead of just teaching a test or a test question and um, then there was a new regime that came in in October, and that all basically got thrown out the window. And um, they're back to patching up the exams to at least at least they now should reflect what's in the current standards, which you know that's that's obviously a good thing. But um, I, I don't see how they're really fixing the other issues that that you've mentioned here. Uh, as far as having proper course objectives, learning objectives, and, and making sure that the attendees come out of there, you know, with with the fundamental knowledge that that has been um, vetted and 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 is one that matches the type of work they do. I mean, I I don't know, and you know better than me, Cliff. I, I took one water restoration technician course long ago and it was from you and there was a lot of hands-on in that course but i know they teach these courses around the country and um you know training facilities that really don't have 
that much of an opportunity for hands-on. Some do. Some of the training houses do, but I know they're in, like Jim's place, a uh, distributor's place down there. I mean, what kind of hands-on is required in the water restoration technician course? I'm, Joe, I'm, I'm really not sure uh, at this point. Uh, I haven't taught it for, you know, for some time. Uh, I, I think it's speaking generally, you know, I think that the IICRC likes to have as much hands-on uh, training during the courses uh, as possible. I think that they, you know, support that. I think that they encourage that. One of the challenges is that there's not really adequate time in order to do it. And and speaking with Jim, uh, you know, the bottom line in most of the hands-on that you know, that particularly that's done at a distributor's training room or done in a hotel. Uh, facility, uh, typically it's the instructor demonstrating some pieces of equipment or some pieces of chemicals. So it's not real world, real time, uh, you know, situation like when you came to the class that we did in Pittsburgh. I mean, you know, uh, people, you know, turned the water on, they could see the, you know, the sprinkler heads go off and, you know, we know that four or 500 gallons was, you know, dumped into that room and, uh, you know, the students can then can then deal with it. So, uh, you know, a lot of this training, uh, you know, my big concern is, you know, is, number one is one of safety. Uh, you know, one of the classes that you can take through the IICRC is AMRT, Applied Microbial, you know, Restoration Technician. And I know that I had been to the, the course that I took, I took in Canada, uh, I believe the instructors did the best they could under the circumstances, but the course was taught in a uh, in a banquet hall. And you know, yes, we did build a containment, and yes, we did put on PPE, and yes, we did in the containments cut some pieces of drywall and so on and so forth that were simulated. However, um, you know, after that class, I, you know, I needed to get a 90% or better in order to teach the, uh, the subject matter. And I felt based on my background and experience and you know, the fact that I'd done many mold removal projects, you know, prior to this, that uh, I was okay when I got out of there and felt comfortable, uh, you know, going out into the field. You know, I, you know, I took one of the earliest courses that was done uh, it was done by Mid-Atlantic uh, Group in, in Philadelphia. Uh, a very early, I think they were probably the first people that had it, because I think you went to it, Dieter went to it, I went to it, and I think Krell was in my class, uh, you know, when we took it. But that was really the first, you know, course that taught it. And, again, they had some simulations there. I remember being fit tested and so on and so forth for my respirator, and I think that, I think didn't we get a respirator as part of the course? I think uh, you know you had to pay yep. for it, but they you know they gave you the respirator, so at least everyone was professionally uh, you know fit tested. And you know the, the big challenge is that someone can come out of there, be certified, go out, sell a job, do the job, and never really had any experience in the field. And to me, that's a pretty scary thing. And when we decided that we were going to teach the AMRT category, we really wanted it to be 
realistic. And, you know, one of the things that we did is we actually had a room in which we tried to grow mold and tried very, very hard to grow spachybotrys because it was a serious situation. And the students that did the remediation actually built three containments. They built two for practice, and the third one they put together was for real. And I learned a lot of this from scuba diving training. You know, I, I uh, as a recreational scuba diver, I took uh, a couple of different types of training classes, you know, the, the, the basic skill stuff so that you can go and, and rent equipment. Uh, I took something which was called an advanced course, and it's really not much different than, than the basic stuff. But none of those were really, really challenging. I mean, you needed to demonstrate the skill you know, for the instructor, but you really weren't under stress when you demonstrated the skill. You know, you were doing it, you're watching other people do it, and, and, and so on and so forth. And when my son and I, when I became interested in, in, in cave diving and, and wanted to do that, that's an extreme sport, and it really takes an extreme type of training. And I registered myself uh, and my son in a class. Uh, we were supposed to be cave divers at the end of at the end of this class. I think it was about seven days of seven days of training. And we went in very very confident you know, that we were going to be able to come out of there as cave divers. And I can tell you that we barely came out of there as cavern divers, which was the lowest level, because neither of us had had uh, a lot of diving experience before that. All of the equipment was different that we had, you know, that we had to learn in the class. Everything that they taught us in the basic skills class was really wrong from a cave diving standpoint, and we, you know, we just had to learn all over. And it was like being in front of a, a fire hose, you know, at full blast, just trying to absorb all of this information. And it actually took my son and I, you know, a couple of years, uh, you know, before we really, uh, you know, finished the class. And, you know, we actually had an instructor that we hired, and, uh, you know, he would always guide us, and he would take us, you know, to different places. And, you know, now I, I, I probably have under my belt, I think, 500, uh, you know, full cave dives, and Zach's pretty close to that, probably has 350 or 400, and, wow. uh, you know, the difference is that, uh, you know, one time, uh, you know, I saved Zach's life because he ran out of air, and, you know, the amazing thing was that you, we automatically went into the skills without missing a beat. You know, I thought it was practice. And he, in and out, and he was in an out-of-air situation, but we had just trained for it, exactly knew what to do, exactly knew how to do it, and the execution was absolutely flawless. You know, another time we were diving, I essentially made a wrong turn. And I didn't realize that, you know, I'd made a wrong turn, and, uh, you know, I'm going further, and I'm going further, and I'm, I'm going further, and... You know, what I didn't realize is that I was going down a passageway that we didn't come through previously. And this thing's getting tighter, and it's getting tighter, and it's getting tighter, and 
I figured, you know, I, I had to have come through here. Therefore, you know, I, I had to go back. And, uh, you know, it was the same type situation. You know, he says, you know, he tells me underwater, you know, stop. You essentially made a wrong turn. we got to turn around. And, you know, then you kind of look at him, duh, you know, like underwater. And, uh, you know, followed him out. And, uh, but, and when, when we did the training, you know, we told these students that, you know, we wanted to be sure they were fit tested. We wanted to be sure that that equipment was working because we wanted them to be in a situation where they dealt with real stacky blockers, that this is as bad as it's going to get. This is the, 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 the one fungal species you need to be most concerned about. And, and, you know, when they came out of there, I was confident that they were able to do the work. You know, it's the same thing when we taught, and, you know, one of the things we did in our water class that wasn't required, but, and we also incorporated it into the AMRT was, was sewage. You know, you get a lot of situations where there can be uh, fecal matter uh, in the sewage. Uh, we used a form of fecal matter that, you know, would put a lot of E. coli in the water, but the fecal matter that we use came from horses. And there are no uh, communicable diseases that come from the fecal matter of horses that can go into humans. And uh, what we would do is uh, we would get uh, fecal matter from horses, we would put it into the water, uh, and, you know, my friend, uh, Dr. Felicia Chiangirulo, she's a PhD microbiologist, you know, she could come in and sample after they did the, you know, the cleaning, and the way we cleaned <laughs> Uh, we got it all, you know, and because the students knew that some PhD was going to come in there with a with a Q-tip with a long handle on it, and she was going to stick it anywhere that the sun didn't shine, and that it was real important that uh, you know they clean in those areas, and they did clean in those areas, and you know the way that we did it, you know, with the foam and you know the cleaner disinfectants and the rinsing and the process and, and, and so on and so forth you know we ended up getting clearance uh, every time the same thing with the uh, you know the, the, the mold remediation you know same thing but you know what's crazy is sometimes stuff gets into these courses that just doesn't happen you know I happen to have been reading uh, I was out of town, I was on the airplane, uh, something came out, uh, it was in R&R Magazine, there was an article, and uh, there was a little video there, and they had uh, someone speaking on the video, I'm not going to mention names, and the subject was whether or not they preferred uh, ozone versus hydroxyl. And this person had an opinion, and she expressed the opinion, and, you know, went into some of the technical uh, information to support a decision. And a lot of that technical information was incorrect. And it's not that she didn't study. It's not that she didn't prepare. It's the information that she learned when she took her IICRC course. The information was not accurate. And one of the things that, that, that is very pervasive you know, in that industry is, is some, there's some bad science. There's some made-up stuff, and it just keeps getting carried over and over and over 
you know, in these courses. And, and one of those things is that when you mix ozone with water, you get hydrogen peroxide, and that's likely to cause fabrics to, you know, to lose colors. Uh, you know, because uh, hydrogen peroxide is a bleach, you know, what they don't tell you is that ozone is a much stronger bleach. As a matter of fact, it's the second strongest bleach known to man. The only thing that's stronger as an oxidizing agent is fluorine. But they, they just make this stuff up, and it just gets perpetuated. And, you know, when I hear people repeating this, like a parrot would repeat, you know, words, you know, that, that, that it learns, it just makes my head want to explode. And, <laughs> I don't know, it's just... Hey, well, I, I wanted to break in for a second. I did get uh, confirmation. Um, there has been a scheduling mix-up, so Dr. Fisk is going to, or Bill Fisk, I don't think it's Dr. Fisk. Bill Fisk will be back on, uh, we're working on uh, October 28th, Cliff, so uh, he will not be joining us today. That's my fault, actually. I, I was on the road last week and trying to do too many things at once, and um, I had it. I had the dates mixed up, so I will have to... Uh, I have to just uh, apologize to listeners, and uh, we'll get Dr. Bill Fisk back on uh, scheduled for uh, end of September. But um, you know, while we're here, I think maybe we could wrap up over the next you know four or five minutes here. And uh, I wanted to mention uh, something that happened to me in a class last week. Well, let me let me do this, Cliff. Before we do that, is there anything else you wanted to to add to wrap up on the discussion of last week's show? No, not really. Um... Is Jim? Uh, going to start doing the IICRC courses again, or is he pretty well, much no, doing I think he's checked out. He's not going to be doing them again. He wants to do the training his way, you know, which involves a lot of hands-on. Uh, you know, we discussed uh, a little bit about online, what types of things, you know, uh, you know can be learned online, you know, and, and I think we agree that vocabulary words and perhaps some of the science and so on and so forth could be uh, you know, it could be learned online, but, you know, his uh, training is is immersive. You know, you go there and you're going to be doing it. Uh, I think a couple other things that we talked about is it's, it's almost like military training, Joe. I, I think the backbone of, you know, whether it's the Army or it's the, you know, the Marine Corps, you know, the, the, the background is really the small uh, you know, the small group dynamics, you know, you're sending out a, a small group of people out there to do a task, you know, to accomplish something. And, you know, that's really where leadership starts. You know, I think in the restoration industry and other industries, we talk about there's all this leadership stuff and there's all this management stuff. And I believe that all that stuff is very, very important. But, you know, really where leadership starts is, uh, you know, the owner of the company and the first employee, you know, uh, uh, and I think a lot of times, you know, you need to show that person that you're willing to do it uh, before you ask them to do it, and um, you know, just 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 small level level supervision skills. I think that's real important. I think that should be shown in school in classes, and I think it should be demonstrated. Okay. Well, let me uh, let me kind of wrap things up a little here, uh, Cliff, and let's. Uh, you think we should continue? I mean, I I have no problem continuing just chatting for another half an hour, and then uh, you know we we can always post that later. Or I'm I'm going to have to let people know that uh, Bill Fisk is going to join us. 
later in September. Um, but um, I was on the road last week. It was kind of interesting. We had a uh, gentleman in class that came in from uh, Suzhou, China, actually, uh, to, to take a five-day indoor environmentalist class. And I've been trying really hard to get more hands-on in that class. And we were fortunate enough to be doing it at uh, in Kansas City area where Children's Mercy Hospital is and Kevin Kennedy and Luke Gard and their group had some people in there and we had we were able to arrange two field trips during the week uh, one for a residential assessment and one for a, a commercial uh, I wouldn't call that one an assessment but it was a, a a walkthrough of a building so that we could look at the mechanical systems we had the guy that's in charge of the hospital's mechanical systems there reviewing the types of mechanical systems, the areas within the system that could have issues, talking a little bit about how they have to HEPA filter certain rooms, uh, going over positive and negative pressure rooms and and uh, things of that nature. But it was uh, what, what kind of interested me more than anything was uh, the, the business this gentleman had in, uh, in, in China, which was uh, very interesting to me. He had a... Uh, uh, 21 people, basically. I think there were seven locations, and these were just small individual offices that actually go out into indoor air quality uh, investigations. But their concern wasn't like the concerns here in the States. I mean, there's, the construction's different. It's more concrete, steel, etc. But they had very uh, little concern about moisture issues. That wasn't the big issue for them. The big issue for them was particulate particles uh, because of the outdoor air and chemical emissions, which I was a little, I, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was a little surprised to learn that there's a great awareness in China that the chemical off-gassing that occurs with a lot of their furnishings in particular are not regulated and that they realize that a lot of the products they buy that are made in China have tremendous off-gassing issues. And so his company focused primarily on particle evaluation and mitigation and uh, putting in filtration systems and ventilation systems, but secondly on evaluating the chemical hazards within their homes. And, and that's not always been a big focus here in the States, although you know a lot of indoor environmentalists do it. I think there's probably a whole lot more mold inspectors here in the United States than there are people that actually do indoor air quality investigations and even think about the chemical emissions in homes. It seems like the opposite is occurring, at least in the eastern part of China. And he was a fascinating guy to work with and talk to for the week, um, very knowledgeable about uh, a lot of things we do. He does have some what he calls his godparents here in the States, which made it uh, – you know, uh, he worked with some folks in Houston for many years, and he's a lot. His English was excellent. And he was very familiar with our our culture and our customs and so on. So that made things really easy. And uh, but it was a very interesting week uh, working with him, and then some of the local folks out that way that were doing indoor air quality investigations. We had a great week of uh, class and discussion of different. And then of course we had a couple guys from the Children's Mercy Hospital group sit in on the class and uh, talking a little bit about the types of projects they are involved in, uh, mostly schools and residential homes where people have children with asthma and allergy issues and they go in and do an evaluation to make sure that the triggers that cause asthma attacks in particular 
are being dealt with and that uh, the the homeowners and the, um, the the parents are educated in how to reduce those exposures for their children. They have nurse educators that are also involved with going out and talking to the parents. So very interesting week out in Kansas City last week and uh sorry I missed the show but um I'll be around here for the rest you know for the next month or so and until the uh conference which is coming up pretty soon. And uh it's going going well so that's good. Yeah, yeah it looks good. We've got uh, a nice uh, start on the enrollment there. We still have people calling and uh, signing up, and uh, we've got all our speakers confirmed. And we've got Terry Brennan coming in for the keynote. That'll be a lot of fun. Um, I've got uh, Joe Spurgeon keynoting on day two. We're going to uh, we've really upped the ante on the research this year. We're going to have um, I talked to the people at Particles Plus, and they're going to actually send four particle counters that have just been calibrated and and are also zeroed in with each other so that when we set up the four hotel rooms again this year we will have particle counting throughout that whole 36 hour period this year we're going to go for 36 hours as we evaluate what different types of engineering controls do to the indoor air quality parameters within at least these hotel rooms um, should be very interesting we're adding uh, evaluation this year with the Instascope, which we've talked about here on the show. So we'll compare the Instascope to spore trap sampling. And uh, Who's going to uh, be uh, doing that? The Instascope? Right. Uh, that would be uh, Eric Shapiro, who okay. owns one in Jersey. And as I understand it, um, the gentleman who runs the company's coming in as well, uh, Matt Coghill, who was on our show, Right, is right. coming as well. I don't know if he's bringing a scope with him or we're going to use Eric's, but um, we're going to have one there. Um, we've also got Alice D'Elia, Dr. D'Elia, coming in to speak on uh, VOCs and MVOCs. We're going to add evaluation of MVOCs this year. Um, I've actually got two labs lined up to analyze the spore traps. We've got, uh, we're going to add some uh, uh, what do you call that? Um, uh, the the testing they do um, in the schools uh, standard that Richard Shaughnessy worked on. Um, oh, the um, TSP, uh, not TSP. Um, uh, no, I, the, for whatever reason, I can't think of the name. It's the the, the fluorescent. Yeah, for us, well, the one where, you know, they swab a surface and they can tell you whether there's any living organism in there. Uh, for some reason, I'm just drawing a blank today. I can imagine. I have a good idea why, but we're going to add that as well. Um, we're going to, after we set the rooms up for 24 hours, we're then going to treat them all a little differently at the end. So one room, we will use the air washing method that uh, Dr. Bill Vaughn developed and talked about on our show. Another room will use a uh, misting uh, product to see how that affects the particle counts when you're done. So we're looking at how people can have a more, uh, have a better chance of passing a post remediation uh, verification through spore trap sampling or particle counts. We're going to see how these different methods affect the particle counts in a room after we've uh, 
simulated setting them up as a remediation project for a day. So should be a lot of fun this year. We got some good people. Steve Sowers coming back again. Steve will be uh, the entertainment. Uh, right. We've got Kevin Kennedy coming in to speak. We've got um, Linda Wigington is coming in to speak. She used to be in, in charge of Affordable Comfort Institute. She's doing a big project on uh, home uh, low-cost sensors in homes and uh, She's very big in the energy world. So, of course, Terry Brennan is our keynote for that section. Uh, we've got some really uh, very, very interesting program this year and some great speakers coming in to, to help us out. Uh, we've got an MD coming in, Dr. Lisa Naj. She was on our show as well, N-A-G-Y is how you spell that. She's going to come in and talk a little bit about environmental sensitivities. Uh, Carl Grimes will be in. Going to talk about the ASHRAE damp paper that is just uh, out for review right now. It's not out in the public, but we'll have a copy there. Um, we've got quite a lineup coming in, and um, I urge people to come on up and join us and uh, go to the IAQ Training Institute website and uh, iaqtraining.com. Sign up and come and see us. Uh, it'll be October 20 and 21 at Seven Springs Resort. And Cliff, I'm I'm thinking maybe we want to wrap it up here. Um, we've we've got a uh, unfortunate uh, scheduling issue that came up today. We weren't able to bring uh, Bill Fisk on, but we have rescheduled to have him back September 20, October 28th. That's the problem. I'm getting my uh, months mixed up here, and uh, hopefully my computer will be back too. They it's been a crazy day. They took my main computer out of here this morning. It broke down, so it's been. Quite the day, Cliff, but, uh, you know, we'll be back next Friday at noon. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure what we're going to do next week. Um, I don't know whether you want to go ahead and do the show with Lisa. Yeah, I think if if, if uh, we can firm her, it makes good sense, I think. Let's try and do that. And then um, the week after, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work on a guest. Uh, I'm trying to get uh, Dr. Nazaroff on. Uh, I've got a few other ideas, too, so... Why don't we wrap it up here, and then uh, we'll be back next Friday uh, for the next episode of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.